Hello, and welcome to Checks and Balances, Threats to This American Election. This weekly podcast is sponsored by Checks and Balances, a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers dedicated to bolstering the rule of law and opposing the degradation of American legal norms. My name is Paul Rosenzweig, and I'm your host. Joining me today as my guests on the podcast are Jonathan Adler and Adam White. And our topic today is the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Fostering free and fair elections is not a partisan issue. It's not a right and left issue, and it's not a conservative, libertarian, liberal, or progressive issue. It's an American issue. And so, in this podcast, we aspire to offer accurate information that captures the ground truth about our election process. We'll talk about what the law entails and how to make sure that every legal vote counts. And we'll also talk about what is at stake in the election and why elections have consequences. Today's discussion hits on the second of those, and it melds the election with the rule of law. The nomination of Judge Barrett is both a political matter and a matter of law and the judiciary. I'm joined today for our discussion by Professor Jonathan Adler, who is the Johann Verhey Memorial Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. He is also the director of the Coleman P. Burke Center for Environmental Law at Case Western, where he teaches courses in environmental, administrative, and constitutional law. Also joining us today is Professor Adam White. He's an assistant professor of law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia School of Law, teaching and writing on administrative law and related subjects. And he directs the law school's C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. Adam is also affiliated with the American Enterprise Institute and is a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. As you might gather from the intros this week, all three of us are active members of the Federalist Society and consider ourselves conservative in our judicial philosophy. Like me, Jonathan is a member as well of Checks and Balances. And Adam, you should be. And you should also be part at the R Street Institute instead of AEI. But you're young yet. So, uh, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks. Thanks, Paul. Good to be here. Yeah, we always start with something in the news that is law-related and close to our topic. The obvious question today is a pure process question. What do we think of the Senate conducting its hearings this week? We'll talk later about the history of confirmations uh, and the proximity to the election. So let's put that aside. My question today really right now is more about the pandemic and about the COVID-19 disease. Jonathan, what can you tell us about remote hearings in the Senate since March, since the start of the disease? Have there been other judicial confirmation hearings conducted remotely? Uh, there have. Um, the Senate Judiciary Committee has uh, had hearings for over 20 judicial nominees since March, uh, conducting those hearings at least partially remotely. So for most of those hearings, at least some of the senators participated remotely. Uh, and in, I believe, at least five of those cases, the nominees themselves participated remotely. Um, The Senate Judiciary Committee's rules actually provide for proxy voting, including proxy voting that can be uh, done over the phone um, in a way that uh, the House and Senate rules generally do not. So uh, the fact of a hearing in a a context in which not everyone can be there in person is something the Senate Judiciary Committee has been able to handle for a while. So, Adam, 
Um, some say the Supreme Court should be different, right? It's the one court that is above all the others. And some suggest that nominees to the court should be looked in the eye, in person. Uh, does that distinction make sense or, or, or should the same rules apply to all judicial nominations, whatever their level? I think it's a fair point. Uh, Supreme Court nominations are some of the most significant things that happen in government now. And so, of course, I think it's fair to say that a Supreme Court nomination isn't exactly like the other nominations, but I'm not sure that it's a distinction that really makes a difference. Um, I'm glad that the Senate Judiciary has, Committee has found a way to to do its work during these extraordinary times. And yes, doing a Supreme Court confirmation hearing partly remote is is not ideal, but I, I think it was fair for the committee to go forward with it. Jonathan, what's the provenance of those proxy rules? Um, that you mentioned, uh, did, are they from this Congress or have they been around for a long time? I'm not entirely sure how old they are, but they are. They, these are rules that were adopted uh, pre-pandemic. Um, both the House and the Senate have talked about modifying their rules to allow for uh, different sorts of proxies given the pandemic. The House passed something back in the spring uh, and then on a party line vote, and then Republicans challenged it. Uh, in the Senate, uh, in recent weeks, there has been discussion of by Republicans of allowing proxy voting. Unfortunately, like so much else, the idea of having you know, common sense rules to allow continuity in government pr- procedures and, and proceedings during something like a pandemic has fallen victim to efforts to gain partisan advantage. So, so let me ask you, Adam, you know, what are the rules? I mean, given that proxy voting can happen in the uh, Judiciary Committee, uh, it seems like it doesn't matter that uh, three of the, uh, at least two of the Republican members have, have tested positive for COVID. Senator Lee and um, uh, who was the second one? I forget. Till, Tillis. Uh, Till, Tillis, Senator Tillis. And Senator Johnson has also tested positive, though he's not on the committee. But what about in the Senate itself? Uh, Is there a provision there for proxy voting? And if there's not, what might the absence of three members of the Senate mean for quorum purposes in the Senate itself? Well, the process of actually voting in the full Senate, that's much murkier, both in the House and the Senate. We saw a a constitutional lawsuit filed against uh, Speaker Pelosi few months ago, I think it was led by Kevin, by Congressman McCarthy, challenging uh, the, the, the House's enactment of rules that provided for proxy voting. So giving somebody else your proxy to vote on your behalf if you can't be there in person. There is language in the Constitution that really seems to strongly imply the expectation that members of Congress uh, would come to the building to do at least the final sort of key parts of their job, voting on legislation, giving advice and consent on nominations. It wasn't conclusive. I think you, I think it's fair to say the framers probably ex- expected that's how it would go, but whether it rises to the level of constitutional requirement is not really clear to me. Um, but I think it's fair to say that if this does get to, if this goes through committee, as I presume it will, and goes to a full Senate vote, you'll have every effort by every Republican senator who could possibly be there to come and vote in person, if at all possible, so that there's no question about the legitimacy of the votes surrounding this nominee. You could see uh, Leader McConnell taking extraordinary lengths, say another Republican member of the Senate is 
uh, stricken by COVID-19. You could see the, se- the Senate holding the vote open for many, many hours, maybe days, allowing the, the sick member to enter the chamber alone and vote. I mean, I, I'd say it's, I'd be shocked if any Republican senator tries to vote by proxy or remotely, given the stakes surrounding this nomination. Well, that's interesting. Um, uh, one last question about this, and, and I, I didn't I didn't preview this guy for you guys. So if you don't know the answer, let me know. But do, do we have any experience with with voting uh, during the Spanish flu 100 years ago? How did Congress deal with that, if either of you knows? Yeah, I, I, I don't know that. I do know that that Congress has experience with forcing members to show up to establish a quorum. Uh, which is something that's been talked about if the Democrats decided that they wanted to boycott a vote uh, on the floor. Um, But I don't know about 1918. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know the answer either. Well, it's a fun historical chestnut. I, I know I know the part about forcing people to show up. There is a lot of state legislatures lately have tried to run across state lines to avoid that that very issue. Yeah. Okay. So let's turn to the more meaty substance of of our discussion today, which is uh, Judge Barrett's nomination itself. And I want to break that into two parts. Uh, First, I want to talk about the politics of it. And then I want to talk about judging judicial philosophy in the law. Okay. So so let's start with the politics. Leaving aside COVID completely, uh, the Barrett nomination plays out, of course, against the backdrop of the failed nomination of Merrick Garland. At the time, Senate Majority Leader McConnell said that Garland should not be considered because an election was then less than nine months away, about eight eight and a bit. Um, of course, uh, Justice Ginsburg's death was less than two months before the coming election that is three weeks from tomorrow. So some see the precedent that uh, Leader McConnell set with respect to Garland as persuasive, uh, yet Senator McConnell is taking a different tack this time around, uh, seemingly disregarding much of what he said before. Jonathan, tell us again about some history. Tell us about the history of nominations in an election year. What's the actual uh, history itself? For example, uh, one case I know of is the case of Justice Anthony Kennedy. But tell us as much of this as you want. Sure. So, um, I mean, as a general matter, it's not a surprise that since the the development of political parties that vacancies in election years are more contentious than vacancies in other years. Um, by my count, um, prior uh, to the Trump presidency, there were 15 occasions in which a vacancy arose within 12 months prior to the election. Um, the Kennedy example actually doesn't fall within that because that vacancy actually occurred earlier. And as listeners may recall, the Senate first rejected a prior nominee, Robert Bork, in 1987. There was then going to be the nomination of Douglas Ginsburg. He withdrew before his nomination was was, was uh, actually offered. And then uh, Anthony Kennedy was uh, nominated. Um, but of the 15 times where a vacancy arose within a year prior to the election, um, that was only filled prior to the election seven of those times. And then there were some cases where the vacancy was filled after the election uh, in the lame duck session. The other thing that you notice when you look at this history is that uh, when the Senate and the presidency were in the same hands, uh, there 
vacancy tended to get filled either before or after the election, but it would get filled by uh, the president who was in office at the time. And where the president and the Senate were in separate parties, it's closer to a 50-50 proposition. Uh, and in at least some cases, I think in at least two, um, the vacancy was filled by a nominee from the other party, uh, likely nominated out of a recognition that uh, the Senate would not go along before an election uh, in giving the president someone of his own party. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why, with with the exception of Earl Warren um, deciding to step down in 1968 because he did not think he would last another four years and he wanted to give President Johnson the chance to name a successor. Um, justices have generally avoided uh, a retiring in election years because they know it puts an additional stress on the process. And the reason that we haven't been able to avoid it recently was because we had the, the tragic and unforeseen uh, deaths of both Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg uh, occurring uh, in election years. So, Adam, what, what that says to me is that um, this is not actually a norm of behavior to refrain uh, or, or an abuse of a norm of behavior to refrain from confirming a nominee of the other party during an election year. But what it also says to me is that that means that what Senator McConnell was saying last year was actually not exactly what he meant. If he'd said, we're not going to confirm Justice Garland because there's an election coming and he's a Democrat, that would have been one thing. But he didn't say the second part of that. Was it implicit? Is that kind of uh, norm uh, uh, binding in any way? And if it's not... What should we make of uh, the seeming, I, I say that advisedly, the seeming hypocrisy of uh, the way that uh, Senator McConnell has approached the question? Well, I've spent a lot of time thinking about 2016, like a lot of us have. Um, you know, as it happens, many years before 2016, in fact, while I was still in law school, I wrote a law review article about why the Senate didn't have a constitutional duty to vote on judicial nominations. And I wrote it during the Bush years when when Democrats were filibustering lower court nominations and President Bush was making a sometimes constitutional case for the Senate to vote. And so I wrote that article, and which precisely zero people cared about because it was a student note, um, until um, Justice Scalia passed away. And then suddenly, I spent a lot of time talking with Senate offices and Senate staff about um, about why the Senate didn't need to vote. And I remember being struck by the point that you just highlighted, that Republican senators could have made a pretty straightforward case saying this is divided government. We, are, we as Republicans don't owe a vote on this nominee. And therefore, because President Obama is from a different party, we're not going to go forward. And it's true that the Republicans from time to time alluded to the fact of, of divided government. But the real thrust of their case throughout 2016 was a principled case against election year confirmations. That's precisely why uh, McConnell's flip-flop on it a couple of years ago when he renounced that position was so controversial. It's why uh, Senator Grassley and Graham, their statements are not coming back to haunt them. And so there's no real – I wouldn't say there's a norm or a precedent. I, in the Senate, norms and precedents are, ex are extremely important and they always have been. I think just because of the small sample size and the, so the fact-specific nature of those small sample of cases really doesn't really doesn't point towards a, a concrete norm. But what I do think is the case is that by binding themselves so 
tightly to this principled talk throughout 2016 about election year confirmations. I think Republicans really, really, uh, really shot their own credibility um, by suddenly flip-flopping on it. Uh, they could have made a, a case for changing their mind. They could have sort of admitted they, they were changing their mind and, and take the political heat for it. But now what they've done throughout 2016, and even in the beginning of the hearings today, as I was listening, listening to Chairman Graham give his opening statement, is they're trying to really rewrite the history of their rhetoric through 2016. It undermines their credibility. Um, what I worry is that it undermines the credibility of the nominee. It's not her fault, and it shouldn't undermine it. But this is this hearing is first and foremost the opportunity to introduce Judge Barrett, who I think would be a phenomenal justice, um, to the public. And everything that Republicans do to undermine their own credibility, it corrodes at least a little bit the the reputation of Judge Barrett coming into the court. And it'll be, you know, one more thing that she has to sort of overcome as she establishes herself as a justice. Jonathan, what do you think the right answer is in a perfect world if one ever existed, right? Should Garland have been confirmed? Uh, Should we countenance uh, election year nominations and treat them as no different? Well, I I think if you look at the history of judicial confirmations, you see that we've gone through periods of intense conflict like we are now. And there have been periods of, I guess, what you characterize as detente. And I prefer the detente model. I prefer the model where, uh, as Hamilton discussed in Federalist 76, the president is picking the, the justice with an eye towards the justice's overall philosophy and the legacy they will have on the court. And the senators are really there to protect against cronyism or the appointment of someone who lacks qualifications. So if it were up to me, uh, the Senate would be fairly deferential without regard to uh, who the president is. I also think that um, instead of simply relying upon norms, if we were to have a, a presumptive schedule about how nominations were to proceed, that would be very beneficial. And in fact, President Bush back in 2002, when um, the time the Senate was controlled by the Democrats, and they were holding up uh, quite a few of his nominees to federal appellate courts. And he gave a speech in October 2002 where he outlined a set of um, a, essentially a, a presumptive schedule, how far in advance a judge should let the White House know they are planning on retiring, how long a White House should wait before forwarding a nominee so that we don't have judicial emergencies and vacancies uh, for too long a period of time, how long it should be before the, the Senate has its proceedings, and then how long before a vote. And unfortunately, that went nowhere. But I think if we had something like that, then we would have an easy answer to how close to the election is too close. Um, and, and we wouldn't be stuck in the situation where, as Adam noted, you know, politicians over, overstate their case. They try to justify their actions on imaginary constitutional principles that aren't really there. And then when circumstances change, they suddenly find themselves uh, on the other side of their own arguments and being politicians um, uh, end up uh, acting expediently instead of based on principle. And, and I agree with Adam as well that that it's particularly unfortunate when we're talking about judicial nominees because we depend upon judicial nominees once they are confirmed of being able to exercise their their judicial role, perform their judicial role with a degree of impartiality that we don't expect from senators. So, Adam, 
how should senators vote on nominees they well, don't Jonathan want? Jonathan makes a, just a great point about the role of the Senate. Um, the, the classic writing on this from the founding era was, was Federal 76, where Hamilton, he's talking about the Senate's role both on executive appointments and judicial appointments, says that the Senate operates as sort of a silent check to deter just palpably unqualified nominees, people who are really being appointed because of the president's, you know, personal biases towards them, personal relationships with them, and, and so on. And I agree with Jonathan that surely the test can't just be whether each and every individual senator agrees with that nomination, um, just whether that, nom- that that senator as president would nominate the same nominee. That surely can't be. It's just a, a challenge in thinking through what is the right standard then. Sometimes we talk about it in terms of a qualified nominee, Um and I'm not sure qualification is, is really kind of in the eye of the beholder. And I'm not sure how much that, that's the challenge with, with this area is that I think ultimately this calls for some measure of self-restraint by senators. I don't know how much. I just know they need more than they've been giving in the last several cycles of this. But of course, the senators in turn are going to answer to voters. And it would be one thing for a senator, say Grassley. I'm, I'm originally from Iowa. So say Senator Grassley says, I don't... I wouldn't nominate Elena Kagan myself, but she was a good solicitor general and she's a credible scholar and she's the president's pick and therefore I, I, I will vote to confirm her. Well, he'd face a primary challenge or maybe maybe not Grassley, he's so you know, established in Iowa, but Joni Ernst, if she, if she had done that, uh, if she'd been in the Senate when Kagan was nominated, she surely would have faced a, a, a primary challenge. And so it's hard for me to dictate for the senators what their job ought to be. Except all I can do is sort of from my perch in the ivory tower point out that this is just unsustainable. This just constant war of all against all over judicial nominations is unsustainable. And it's ultimately going to just destroy the credibility of the court. Our constitution has a not has a political process for producing non-political judges. That's always been a challenge, a riddle of sorts, a paradox. But I think we're really pushing it beyond the breaking point in ways which we may profoundly regret years ahead. Let me let me stay with you, Adam, and pick up on that last point. You spoke eloquently about how the Republicans' majority's machinations have adversely uh, reflected uh, on uh, Judge Barrett uh, through no fault of her own. And uh, I, let me ask the broader question. Do these machinations adversely impact the credibility of the court uh, more broadly, and if so, um, to what effect the court, as uh, as uh, Bickle said, is the least dangerous branch? It has no armies to enforce its its judgments. Will we be losing something here? Well, on one level, nothing that happens outside of the court can affect the court's credibility, right? It's it's good to say that the court makes its decisions, it justifies them with opinions, with written judicial opinions, and that is the way in which the public should assess the legitimacy of the court. And also, you could take it another step and say, if the people at a given moment in time don't like a particular decision, that doesn't mean that the court's work is legitimate because ultimately the court's work has to be graded against the text of the laws they're applying. And on one level, I agree with all of that. But I also think that the the ongoing public opinion of the court matters the framers understood this and going back to the Federalists again, Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 78, yes, he said the court exercises neither force nor will but merely judgment. But at times in that in that essay, he points out the, 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 the dangers of, of, um, of being seen as an uncredible 
court. And I think the justices need to keep that in mind. It doesn't mean they should change the way they do their work, but it, or it shouldn't change their decisions, but it should change the way they carry themselves and the way that they justify their opinions and the way that they, they, they conduct their work with one another on the national stage. And the Senate and the president, politicians all around, to the extent that they say that they are going to nominate judges to, to carry out certain agendas, as President Trump had said with the Affordable Care Act, to the extent that senators justify their votes for nominees by pointing back to decisions that the judge later made uh, once on the bench, all of this undermines the court's credibility. And I think it's very, very dangerous stuff to play with because it just feeds this public perception that the court is simply, the, the justices on the court are simply naked power organs of the judge, of the political parties that appoint them. You didn't just say naked power organs, did you? I remember that from college and law school and enjoying that very much. So Jonathan, let me turn back to you with with one more question and then and then we'll close with a final question about court packing. But my question for you, Jonathan, is really about uh, the limiting principle, if any, in the election year uh, reticence to confirm people nominated by a president of the opposite party. I was listening to the opening statements today in Judge Barrett's hearing and more or less Senator Cruz seemed to be saying that in his view, uh, there should never be a confirmation of any nominee from a president of the opposite party, irrespective of uh, when that nomination happened in that president's term. I, I'm overreading and overstating what he said, but only slightly. Uh, is there any way to limit the progress of this to just this election year? I think it's it's problematic. And if you look at the history of this idea, uh, you know, uh, there used to be something called the Thurmond rule, which was the idea that um, once the political season begins, that confirmation cease. And uh, then Senator uh, Joe Biden in 1992 gave a very extensive speech on the floor of the Senate um, justifying this idea. And his formulation was that there should not be a Supreme Court confirmation uh, especially when the Senate is held by the opposite party once the political season begins. Now, in 1992, the political season perhaps began over the summer. These days, it seems like you know folks start campaigning for president the second a presidential election ends. And I think that cr them would create a justification for simply not approving any Supreme Court nominee at all. I think that's very dangerous. I think for some of the reasons that Adam talked about it undermines the credibility of the court. And I think a much better approach would be, as, as I noted before, uh, senators agreeing on what the schedule for confirmation should look like. Um, and then uh, the way you deal with partisan advantage is you get the senators to agree in year, you know, to agree in, say, 2021, what the rules will be starting in 2023 or starting in 2025. So they at least all have the, you know, are behind a veil of ignorance about who's going to win and who's going to lose. But we can talk about, okay, what would be rules that make sense? How long of a vacancy is too long, et cetera? Um, I think that's a much better way and, and to go than, than what Senator Cruz is suggesting. And I would love to think that there are at least a handful of senators that perhaps after this election could provide leadership of that sort. So we would be remiss if we didn't end this discussion of the politics 
of this nomination before turning to the substance of Judge Barrett's jurisprudence. Uh, if we didn't talk a little bit about the uh, court packing controversy, if you will, um, uh, it seems uh, to me fair to say that as with withhold with the principle of withholding confirmation in an election year, there is nothing unconstitutional about changing the number of members of the court, provided that the Senate and House can do so by the passage of legislation that's signed into law by a president. Uh, yet that too seems to me to be a uh, significant disruption of norms of behavior. Uh, the last time that the court size was changed was back in the 1800s. And it also seems to me highly likely that it would be an escalatory step in the uh, combat over the Supreme Court. On the other hand, if you're a results-oriented person, if Merrick Garland had replaced Scalia, there would have been a five to four liberal majority for the last two years, at least until uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, died. So it, I, I'll, I'll throw it over to either of you or both of you. Is seven to six the new five to four? Is orange the new black? Let's start well, with you, Adam. If, if it does go to seven, a seven-six court, that'll only be a, a short time before it's a, a, a nine-to-seven court. I just I think that once we open that Pandora's box, there's no shutting it, um, and we'll very, very quickly within twenty-five years have a court that does that will be much significantly much, much bigger than the current court in a way that really transforms the work to look even more like a legislature with coalitions and so on. And so I'm profoundly worried about this. One of the things that bothered me about the rhetoric surrounding the the, the, the nomination of Judge Barrett was people saying, people on the right saying, you know, the only rule for confirming a judge is that she has to be nominated by the president and a, a confirmed by the Senate. And there's nothing else to it. That's just the rule. And that bothered me so much because it's the same that could be said for court packing. You know the only rule for court packing is you can do it when you have the House and the Senate vote and the president sign it. Um, I, I just think that's such a nihilistic view of politics. I think it's right that that appointing – sorry, packing the court with additional seats would not be unconstitutional in the legalistic sense, but I think it would be – unconstitutional or anti-constitutional in terms of, of the, the lower seat constitution of our government, both the, the, the laws and the sort of settled expectations that are unsettled, only at great risk to the to overall governance in our country. And one of the reasons why I've been so worried about Republican rhetoric surrounding this nomination is I worry that it's going to further inflame Democrats who admittedly were talking about packing the court for two years now throughout the political season of these primaries. Um, but I, I very, very much worry that Republicans are making them even more inflamed on this point. And, and yet, Jonathan, we've had changes in the court size. Uh, uh, the court was was shrunk when Adams uh, left and Jefferson became president to prevent Jefferson from adding people. Uh, is this so unusual or, uh, or is it, as Adams seems to suggest, uh, a norm of a different color or flavor than the, than the nominations norm we've been discussing? I think it is of a different character. In some respects, it's, it's a lot more like the idea of impeaching a judge for disagreeing with their rulings. That was tried once very early on with Justice Chase 
the effort failed. And when because when folks looked at it very closely, they realized that that would be a very bad precedent, that courts could not perform as courts if judges always had to worry about being removed for reaching the wrong result. I think something similar happened with Franklin Roosevelt's court packing plan uh, during the New Deal, that even though he had an overwhelming majority in Congress, uh, when folks really thought about the precedent that would set, they realized that that too would undermine the ability of courts to act as courts. And I think that remains true today. The last point I'll made, make is, is that since the mid-1980s, we've been uh, witnessing what happens when you have a cycle of escalating retaliation, where each side figures it has to hit the other one back just a little bit harder when it comes to judicial nominations. Uh, and that was for a while confined to the lower courts, and it's been very destructive. It's led to seats going unfilled. It's led to qualified people uh, being blocked of, of both parties. And I think uh, allowing that cycle uh, to replicate itself when when it comes to the size and composition of the Supreme Court would be yet another uh, bad move uh, down this road. And I think it's something that hopefully uh, members of the Senate can figure out a way to avoid. So we've talked politics a lot. Let's turn to jurisprudence and qualifications. In the conservative judicial pantheon, there are lots of different flavors. Though they're both very conservative, Justice Kavanaugh's jurisprudence is very different from Justice Gorsuch. And they're both different from Justice Thomas. And while nobody could call Justice Roberts a liberal, his conservatism is still different again. Perhaps we might call that a flavor of institutionalism. So, Jonathan, you've looked at it a little bit. Where does Judge Barrett or where would you expect Judge Barrett to fall on this spectrum? Tell us about her judicial philosophy. Sure. Well, based on her writings as an academic um, and her jurisprudence as a judge on the Seventh Circuit, I think there's no question that Judge Barrett is on the conservative side of the spectrum. Uh, she considers herself to be a textualist and originalist in the mold of Antonin Scalia, for whom she clerked. And she has not only uh, exhibited this in her opinions, she's also given some speeches and lectures about this. She gave one here at Case Western about a year ago, which our law review just published, where she talked about how she understands textualism uh, and, and what that means. Um, I think that you know, within the range of conservatives on the current court, uh, one of the questions that a lot of us have is, you know, is she going to be more on the, say, Roberts-Kavanaugh side of things in terms of being more institutionalist or pragmatic, or more on the Justice Thomas side of things in terms of her approach uh, to precedent? Uh, and my, my, my suspicion is that she will actually be somewhere in the middle, that she thinks precedent is important, um, but uh, does believe that the court sometimes needs to uh, correct its own mistakes. I also think that in terms of the you know, judicial engagement, judicial restraint spectrum there again, um, you know, she may not be as restrained as perhaps Justice Scalia was or as, as some conservatives would argue for. Uh, but I don't think she's going to be quite the uh, uh, advocate of judicial engagement that uh, uh, some of my libertarian friends would hope for. Uh, I think she she feels that the judiciary uh, does need to play a more restrained role in its uh, in its actions than than do the political branches, and that's certainly what I would expect from her as a justice. Adam, uh, in a world where there were no political issues, is there anything about Barrett's judicial philosophy that ought to spark controversy, that ought to be outside the 
boundaries of of norms, given the deferential theories that we've we've espoused no, I don't, for, I don't for think the so. Senate generally? Um, I have to admit, I followed her work less closely on the lower court than I did Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, just because you know my general focus on administrative law. You know, those two are really in in the wheelhouse of what I focused on. Barrett's work on precedent has been so fascinating to read over the last few years. Um, in a moment when I think the the biggest issue before the court is this almost metaphysical issue of precedent and how it maps on to originalism. It's just such an interesting issue. We saw it in the last term in Ramos and in June Medical Services. And strangely, Judge Barrett just seems to be the ideal judge for this moment in that she has really, as a scholar, thought through the issue of precedent without pointing at particular precedents um, and saying these must go. If anything, maybe the most controversial part of her record is you know, there, there are a number of people uh, among, in the conservative legal movement who have, little, who have no patience at all for precedent. And I'd say that that's the same for folks on the left who, if given the right moment, would, with a snap of a finger, overturn precedents like Citizens United and so on. And so in some ways, to the extent that the public as a whole is really impatient with precedent, I suppose she is sort of out of step, but I think out of step in, the, in a good way. So let's, uh, you know, you mentioned precedent. It, it would be uh, odd to have a discussion about this without talking about some of the more significant precedents. For example, uh, Senator Hawley has said that he will vote for no jurist who he doesn't think will overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, and he's also said already that he's reached that conclusion about Judge Barrett, uh, notwithstanding the fact that she's never spoken directly to the issue. Um, so two questions or three questions, right? First, is that an appropriate ground for a senator to base a confirmation vote on? Second, uh, is is it likely that he's correctly uh, assessed uh, Judge Barrett, or is she, as you as you just said, Adam, uh, more respectful of precedent and and possibly not going to vote in that direction? How do we assess that problem in this context? Judge Barrett has said a few times, I think they've, we found a couple of examples over the years where she's criticized Roe v. Wade. So that suggests that she wasn't convinced by its merits as original matter. I don't think she's gone so far as to say that the, the, that as a justice, she would uh, overturn it. Um, she probably never spoke in those terms before this year. I suppose she hasn't spoken in those terms ever. Um but I will say, speaking as somebody who thinks that Roe v. Wade it was a profoundly wrong decision, you know, John, I, I quoted Herbert Wexler earlier. I'll quote John Hardily right now that, that Roe v. Wade, it's, it's not that it's bad constitutional law. It's that it's not constitutional law at all and doesn't even bother pretending to be. It's such a, it was such a profoundly base, baseless decision from the start. And it's never had a coherent, uh, it's never been given a coherent intellectual or legal framework ever since. I would have no sympathy to see it go. I would like to say, given what I said earlier about the Senate, you know, senators shouldn't have litmus tests. But of course, their senators are always going to have some sort of test. I just don't know that I'll always agree with it. And what, even if I were to say, boy, I don't like this particular litmus test, if I would have gone back 100 years, would I, would I like to think that I would support senators who would who would only vote for justices who are committed to overturning Plessy v. Ferguson? I'd like to think so. 
And so I don't fault Hawley for uh, having a litmus test. What I do fault senators for is for trumpeting their litmus tests so clearly in a way that colors the public's perception of the judge. Yeah, I would say I, I disagree with Adam on, on the question of whether senators um, uh, should have litmus tests. I mean, I, you know, in Federalist 76, which both Adam and I have invoked, Hamilton predicted that senators would have more parochial and narrow concerns when evaluating judges than would a president. Uh, he said that was the nature of, of committees or collective bodies. Um, and I think we, we, we see this, not just in Hawley's litmus test, but senators before him have announced litmus tests. Senators before him have made clear they want assurances about specific issues. And I think it's a problem in part because if the dynamic of the process is that a nominee knows that the way to get a senator's vote is to convince the senator that they will vote a particular way on a particular matter, then there's a real question about whether or not that nominee can be expected to be impartial when that matter comes before them. Not because they have a judicial philosophy or some sense of how an issue should be evaluated, but because they will have been essentially before a senator as a supplicant, giving some sort of assurance in return for the vote. That is the sort of interaction, whether it occurs in the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, whether it occurs in a senator's office, or for that matter, were to occur in a private interview in the White House, which is, I think, contrary to what we expect of judges and the nature of a judicial oath. So I think it is, it is better to, to, as much as possible, foreclose these sorts of litmus tests and, and foreclose senators getting the sorts of answers that could uh, answer these sorts of, of litmus tests. As for the underlying question, you know, I, I agree with Adam. I think I think it's clear that as a professor, Amy Coney Barrett thought Roe was wrongly decided. I think it's clear as a judge on the Seventh Circuit that she does not think that uh, the existing abortion precedent, Casey, should be read broadly. Uh, but I think once one's actually in the position of making the decision that has potentially n- national ramifications, I think that has a tendency to clarify and perhaps uh, uh, bring bring a question into relief and focus that it doesn't have as a purely theoretical or academic matter. And I'm not so quite so sure what she would do if and when that issue is squarely presented to her. So one last kind of substantive question about Judge Barrett. Uh, in today's Washington Post, uh, uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse said that uh, during the hearings this week, Judge Barrett should promise to recuse herself from any dispute involving the election that is coming up later uh, next month uh, involving President Trump. And he cited a case that the Supreme Court itself had decided about 10 years ago called Caperton versus A.T. Massey, which involved a West Virginia Supreme Court Justice, Brent Benjamin, who had failed to recuse himself from a case involving a uh, judgment against a coal company there after the coal company's chief executive had spent $3 million helping Benjamin win election to that West Virginia court. The Supreme Court, uh, through Justice Kennedy, said, just as no man is allowed to be a judge in his own cause, uh, a a man should not choose the judges in his own cause. Uh, Adam first and then Jonathan, uh, given President Trump's A, nomination 
of Judge Barrett, but more pointedly, his uh, explicit claim that he's expecting uh, the election to be decided by the Supreme Court. And that's one of the reasons he's nominating her. Uh, if such a, a dispute should arise, should Judge Barrett recuse herself? So I, I don't think I buy a, an over-the-top, across-the-board rule limiting justice, justices from hearing cases involving the administration that appointed them. And I, I'd have to go back and see exactly what White House was calling for, but I don't recall. Well, he didn't say that. He said there was a there was a case of imminence. Yeah. He said it was clearly different from Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and that it involved Barrett because she's being nominated and presumably will be confirmed you know, just days before or after the election happens uh, with the explicit um, yeah. uh, premise, at least in Trump's public Yeah, I don't mind, think she should commit to recusing right now. I do election. think, though, that she ought to look very closely at it. I have to be, to be very blunt. I hope she recuses from it. I think that be, given what President Trump has said about this nomination, what other Republicans have said about the need to confirm a judge for the sake of having a justice in place after, for election disputes, maybe not going so far as saying – we, that this judge would vote in their favor, but just tying the, the the appointment so closely to the schedule of the elections, I think that's profoundly dangerous. I think that it would be impossible for Judge Barrett to rule in favor of President Trump, even if he's right on the merits of a case, without severely damaging her own credibility and the credibility of the court, given all the things that President Trump has said around her appointment. And so she should. I would. I would not say she needs to commit to recusing now. But I hope that she will recuse if it comes to that in a post-election case. Jonathan, yeah, I think it's I think it's a hard a hard call. I I don't take seriously that the Caperton decision requires her recusal in this sort of case, and I don't think any justice on the current court believes that either. Uh, justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg made comments about Trump prior to the election his election in 2016 and indicating what she wanted the outcome to be. And when a case involving the Trump campaign came before. Uh, the Supreme Court, she did not recuse um, uh, there, even though that I think would have been a, a fairly clear case for recusal. The other reason I think it's a hard case is that, and we've seen this at the state level, the idea that the comments of a third party or a litigant can force the recusal of the justice creates a really bad dynamic. So I think that that under normal circumstances, I think the argument for recusal would be weak. Uh, that said, you know, like Adam, I I do worry that that like so many things, uh, this, the current situation is is at least raise, poses the question, and that the president has said some things about this particular confirmation and this particular election that at least pose the question. And so I I agree that she should not commit to recusing now. Uh, but it is possible that a case could arise where a recusal would be the proper choice um, uh, for her to make. Okay, gents, lightning round for predictions. Adam, what do you think is going to happen to the nomination? Confirmed, Confirmed before January uh, before 20th? the election on a strict party what? line vote. Jonathan, uh, what role do you expect the court to play in the coming election? More than Bush v. Gore or less? Less. Uh, I think the court will have something to say about a handful of states, but I do not think uh, the court will be credited or blamed for determining the outcome. Good deal. So we always try and end these uh, uh, podcasts with some good news to make the week a little better. And I at least define good news as a case in which the rule of law wins. 
This week's good news comes from Texas. The attorney general there is Ken Paxton. Last week, in a a one-page letter, seven executives from the upper tiers of his office said they were seeking an investigation of Paxton, quote, in his official capacity as the current attorney general of Texas. The letter said that each had knowledge of facts relevant to potential offenses of law and provided statements uh, to law enforcement regarding Paxton's alleged criminality. Now, I don't know the truth of these allegations, but upholding your oath and putting your career on the line to do what you think is right is good news. Kudos to those seven executives in Texas. So that's a wrap for our show. Thank you all for joining us. We'll be releasing a new show every Monday. This episode and all future episodes are available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you can find your podcast to download. We hope you'll subscribe. We also archive our podcasts at cnb.org if you want to find them there. And you can send me feedback at podcast at checks-and-balances.org. That's with hyphens between the words. Join us next week as we are joined by uh, two tax professors who are going to talk about Donald Trump's tax returns and the revelations that have come out in the New York Times in the last couple of weeks. Thanks again to Jonathan Adler and Adam White for joining us on today's podcast. I'm Paul Rosenzweig, your host. Remember, as Pope John Paul II said, when freedom does not have a purpose, when it does not wish to know anything about the rule of law engraved in the hearts of men and women, when it does not listen to the voice of conscience, it turns against humanity and society. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thank you.